homies, it's Michelle Bennett, graphic designer, turn marketer, turn interior decorator, and apparently now podcast host. That's right, peeps. I selfishly started a podcast so that I would have an excuse to pick the brains of designers, decorators, and industry experts so that I can get to the next level. And the best part is you guys are coming with me. I am really, really excited to tell you that I'm here today with Susan Winterstein. Hi, Susan. Thank you for being here. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm so freaking pumped. I have to tell you, uh, Darla Powell says hi, number one. She she told me, I I put in my Facebook group really quickly. I said, if anybody had questions, um, I put it a little late, so I didn't get a whole lot, but Darla wanted me to ask you why you were, how, why you were so awesome. So we're just going to have to <laughs> the podcast. And then another person wants to say hi, Katie Huffman. Yeah. Oh, who, yes. Yeah, uh-huh. who used to work for you. Um, I yeah. interviewed her a couple of weeks ago, and, nice. and then she was like, yeah, I used to work for Susan. And I'm like, oh, my God, that must yeah. be amazing. So anyways, yeah. um, we're just going to get right to it. Let's start. Why don't you okay. tell everybody a little bit about your business and a little bit about you? So how long have you been in business? All that good stuff. Okay. So I started a business in 2002 and I really just started as a hobbyist. Um, I had five kids. Um, I was pregnant with my fifth. Wow. And um, <laughs> my mother-in-law looked at me and said, you know, they're going to grow up and leave someday. So you really should have something of your own. You know, you can't just keep having babies. And I'm like, well, why not? <laughs> Like I, I love having babies. Um, so I did. I really enjoyed being a mom. And I really, you know, wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. And I was for the first 10 years. And I loved that. And then I decided that with the kids, it was just nice to have something that kind of, you know, gave me something of my own. And I always, you know, really enjoyed. My grandmother was a decorator um, and a designer up in Orange County. And I was doing our own home. And I, I am like the typical housewife turned designer. Um And as I started getting into it, I started very, very slow and I was enjoying working for friends and family. And my first, my very, very first client was a friend of mine who took me to lunch one day and thanked me for helping her with her house and gave me, you know, a thousand dollars in cash. And I'm like, this is like the easiest money I've ever made in my life. Like it was so fun. Um, And I loved it. Um, And then as time went on, I started kind of getting busier and busier and I was still working part-time for the first couple of years while I still had a baby until she was in preschool and I let people know. And then as time went on and I got more experience and I got more and more into what I was doing, it started turning into more of a real business and I knew I needed to pay attention to it like a real business. And so I think in about 2007, um, the business was going pretty well. And then we hit, you know, 2009 in the recession. Um, and I was still busy and I was still a solopreneur. And my husband said, you know, he left his job to come work for, um, my business and said, you know, let's do a little role reversal because the demand was exceeding what I could supply being a, you know, part-time designer plus full-time mom. And so he came home and, and kind of, decided to help with some of the accounting and the back-end business stuff, getting the insurances, getting everything that we needed lined up. Um, And I would do, and and he would do like cook the dinners and do the grocery shopping and help with kid pickups so I could pick on more jobs. And so we worked collaboratively and we've been doing that since about 2007, uh, 2008. Um, And 
So now it gave us the lifestyle to be home in the afternoons uh, when the kids got out of school and while they're doing their homework, we're working and we work together and being entrepreneurs. Um, so then we got our general contractor's license about five years ago. And so now we're an official, really a design build firm in San Diego um, that does uh, mostly remodels. And we have about six designers that work with us and um, that are employees. And then we work with just all of our subcontractors um, to do design build. And I think just, you know, it over the years, it's been about 17 years now. And um, I've loved what we've been able to create. And we've been very, very fortunate in that we have great clients and a great little kind of niche market in San Diego. And it's kept us busy and it's afforded us, again, a lifestyle to be here with our kids as they've grown up. And I've got my last one in high school and she's going to be out in two more years. So it's been really kind of cool. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. First of all, I did not know that you were self-taught, which yeah. to me, that's just very encouraging to hear because I'm self-taught and I know a lot of my listeners are too. So that's yeah. incredible. So you're saying you worked as a solo from 2002 until 2007? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. I would have like an assistant here and there, but nobody, okay. like no employees, no formal employees. Um, you know, we worked with contractors and things like that, but no um, staff or team or anything. And so about five years ago, we opened a showroom. Um, oh. Well, about, yeah, in, two, in 20, oh gosh, 2015. So four years ago, we opened our official retail showroom. Um, prior to that, I had a smaller showroom that we worked out of. And I had a couple designers at that time. So yeah, since about, um, I think our first hire like full-time employee was back in 20, been what, six or seven years now. So maybe 2013. Um, we had our first official. And then, so I've got my oldest employees about seven years. So oh, that's yeah. yeah. That's, so, I have so many questions. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh my God. So when you first started, were yeah. you automatically doing renovations right from go or yeah. did you start as like furnishing and accessorizing? I started with just design, like overall opinions and consulting and, you know, room design and things like that. I wasn't um, really into kitchen and bath at all. And I wasn't into larger remodels. It was mostly room design, things like that. As time went on and I started doing more built-ins and then I started kind of um, stepping out, I worked with a woman who did some CAD drawing for uh, kitchens and things like that. And so I worked with her and she designed a few. And then as I started working with her, I started learning more. Um, and as I just kind of, I grew into it, really. I, I've always kind of grown into each aspect of it and learning more as time went on. So that's, that's pretty much what I've done. That's awesome. I mean, that must've been a bit scary early on. Like, do you, can you think back? It's all good. We'll edit that out, or maybe he can come over and, Sorry. and try that again. Try that again. Sorry. <laughs> he sounds like a big dog. <laughs> he's a little dog, but yes, he's a big pain in the ass. He sounds <laughs> like a giant. Um, so, but early on, when you yeah. first started doing the renos and you decided yeah. to start taking that on, like that must have been pretty scary. Like, can you remember going back to that and how that learning, what was that learning curve like for you? Well, I think the first renovations that we did was back in 2007 when my husband first came to work with us. We did a couple house flips. 
Um, and so we had purchased homes and then renovated them and resold them. And we did really well. Um, for We did about three of them between 2007 and 2009. When the market started to kind of take a downhill, we, we got scared. You know, we're financially conservative. We've got five little ones to take care of. It wasn't something that we were really um, prepared to lose any money on. So we got out of kind of some of the house flipping and we decided to really make a conscious effort to grow our business. Um, in addition to the housekeeping. So I was doing, you know, design work, but not a lot of huge renovations. I was working, I, well, I take that back. In 2009, I did a fairly large home renovation with another general contractor, with a builder, and went through that whole process with that general contractor. So probably in 2009 was the biggest project I had done to date. So about seven years in. Um, and then from there, it just, it kind of progressed naturally, um, you know, and, and having a good team of subcontractors um, helped a lot because, you know, I've burned through so many over the years. And really, when you get the ones that you can trust, those are the ones that you want to hang on to. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, like thinking back, so the premise of my podcast yeah. is really to selfishly try to get as much information to help me and obviously take the listeners along for the ride. So I want you to try to go back to the time when you were solo um, and think about some of the processes. So you said you had a bit of an, you had an assistant helping out and did you have an assistant at that time that just helped out with installations or how involved was that assistant and what did they do for you? Um, My first assistant, I made every mistake in the book. So my first assistant was uh, a friend of mine that I had hired who was a stay-at-home mom who wanted to help. um, uh, She always liked design. I was like, oh, and I love design. I want to come work with you. You know, hire me. I'm like, okay, great. Was that one mistake? Number one was hiring your friend? Yeah. Hiring your friend and hiring somebody who has zero design experience. Yes, that was a mistake. I've made all of the mistakes. So, yes, I can tell you all the different mistakes. Um, So I hired a really sweet person, and I'm still friends with her to this day, thank goodness. But, um, you know, not a good fit for a designer. And I I didn't know what to pay her, so I overpaid, you know, for what I got. And, you know, some 10 years ago was paying her $25 an hour, which, you know, seemed reasonable. But you know, looking back in hindsight was way overpriced for what I got. Um, And, you know, so she would take notes at the meetings and then she'd follow up with, you know, certain orders or things that we were doing and kind of try to keep a project on track. Um, And then I hired, you know, an intern. And then I had my first, you know, designer that came back that wanted to work for me. And then it was kind of figuring out, all right, how do I have this other designer? And then how do I bill for our time? And how do I make money? And how can I make money from this designer? And it became a whole cascade of, uh, you know, questions like how do I structure this so that it makes sense for both of us so that it becomes a win-win situation for the designers. And then it's also benefiting us as a business. So it really, I have a joke. I even have a t-shirt that says it's just a math equation because that's really what it all comes down to is math. It's just math. Yeah. It's just you have to run the numbers, and that's yeah. and and really that's the number one thing of of business is just running the numbers. You just have to add it all up and subtract what all your costs are, and at the end of the day, you got to see if it's it's just a math equation of what works. Oh, that's great advice, and I think a lot of people don't do that. And I have heard people say like, "Oh, I had an assistant, I was doing this, but I really wasn't doing the math on whether or not that was gonna." You were basically just like getting paid and then giving it to someone else, right? Yeah. Um, So early on, do you think like, 
for somebody who's a newer business owner, um, you're I, getting really busy. What would your advice be as far as that first hire and what skill sets would they be in your opinion to kind of maximize making more money? Um, yeah. Well, I think there's, there's a couple things. Um, one is, um, there's so many great things, so many great takeaways. Okay. So the first one is you always want to hire somebody that might have a skill set that you don't have. So you look at where you're, where, what you don't have, and you want to hire somebody that's going to enhance your experience. I mean, ultimately when you hire somebody, you're hiring them to, for one of two reasons. One is they're going to make you money. And two, they're going to make your life easier, right? Like somehow, like by having more money, my life is easier or because I hire, I have you in my life. It, it eliminates some of the things I have to do. So it makes my life easier and I get to enjoy my life more. Yeah. And so I always look around that I'm really inherently lazy at, at heart. Like I really <laughs> just want to lay around the pool. I, I really just want a cocktail. I want my, you know, massages. I want to go do fun things. Like I'm really inherently lazy and I work to serve a purpose. Right. So basically, you know, I want to hire somebody that has a skill set that I don't have. I want to hire somebody that's going to make my job easier. I'm going to make sure that um, it's advantageous financially to have that, that person on board. Um, I'm going to look for somebody um, that has a good work ethic, you know, that, that can work at the pace that I work at, which is, tends to be at a fairly uh, full clip, which a lot of that I didn't know about myself. You know, you really have to look at yourself and how you work and figure out who you are and how you're going because managing people is like the worst thing in the whole world. It, oh, yeah. it really is the most horrible thing ever. Yeah. And so if you have to manage other people, you really have to look at your own personality and you have to look at your strengths and your weaknesses and the way that you communicate and the culture that you're creating and how you're communicating with your employees and the pace at which you work to make sure that whoever you're bringing on can match that pace or can complement that pace or, um, can respond well to, you know, criticism. Like I had to look at some of the stuff that I don't do well, which is, you know, I don't write flowery emails. You know, I just don't, I'm just in business mode and I just put it out there. And sometimes it kind of come across as a little rough, you know, because it's not ending in a, Oh, I just think you're so wonderful. And, you know, yeah, it's just like, boom, this is business like response. Yeah. And I don't take it too personally, but other people do. So I have to be mindful about how my, personality might come across to one of my employees um in hiring something i think now versus i will never hire another junior designer or a starting position without any cat experience um or drafting experience um because to me that's the number one easiest thing to sub out so when i get a designer that comes to work for me um you know i'm not so worried about them going to school or not if they have an aesthetic I'm not worried about, um, uh, you know, what, what architecture degree they had or whatever they have. I'm mostly worried about what kind of skill set and drafting do you have? Because to me, that's the easiest thing to sub out. Like here, draft up this bathroom, draft up this room, go scale in some furniture for me, go do this. I want this. I want that. That to me makes my, my life easier. A, right. because I don't, I never was taught CAD, nor is it a good use of my time at this point to go back in life and try to learn it. And because it's so time consuming, I can do it myself if I had learned it at my rate, which is my design rate versus paying an employee that I get so much more productivity out of because they can spend three hours and they haven't even touched what my hourly rate is, but I can bill it out. So it becomes again, that math equation, right? Like what's a good use of my time? Where's my spend? Is it out getting more jobs and selling more jobs and taking on more opportunities? 
where I'm the front person and I'm doing the design work and my ideas are being translated in CAD by somebody else, or is it me sitting down and trying to do CAD for three hours? It's just, you know, cost benefit kind of analysis. Right. Um, but the one, the one, the number one thing I think that most new designers when they're hiring somebody should consider doing is getting their processes ironed out, you know, getting a system in place for their business. To me, that's the one thing that I think has helped us the most is when we, you have a definitive, if you know, if you get a client, that's what needs to happen first. You do X, Y, Z. This is our process. This is how we do it. This is how you request a quote. This is how you mark things up. This is how you put things in our system. This is how you uh, file digitally. This is how we account for things. All of those systems to run your business really should be cohesive and in place before you bring somebody else in because if you bring somebody else in and you don't have a process in place for how you run your business, it's going to be chaotic and disorganized and you're not going to get your money for it because they're not going to know what to do. They're not going to know how you do it. And they don't, there's not going to be any best practices in place to, um, you know, set those systems up. So you're just kind of flying around and it gets disorganized and then it's a no win for both parties. Absolutely. I, and okay. So for you, how long would you say it took you to build out your processes? And I'm sure it's an iterative process right. that, you know, you, you don't get too crazy about making it perfect. You create a process and you iterate, but how long, and when did you finally figure that out? And then how long, and how did you start? Like where? I, where did I think it's kind of a building block thing. I think that when you've been in business and you see a certain amount of success in supply and demand, so you, let's say you're starting out, and you're getting more work than you can accommodate on your own. And you're having to turn away clients, right? Like clients are coming to you and you're saying, I am booked for the next six months. Like I can't see you till next March. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in that space, then the one thing that you want to do is take what you're doing at that moment and you want to replicate it, right? You want to copy it because if you could clone yourself and do the same thing twice, then you could support having another person, right? You could say, okay, I did this one thing and it's working. So now how can I replicate that so I can do twice as much and make twice as much and grow my business so that I'm only booking out three months because now I have two of us on here. So you really want to say, okay, it's kind of like a building block. So you have your foundation. So you go for your consultation. What are you doing in your consultations and in your bid process that's working, that's getting you clients for six months? So what is it that's working? Well, I go out and I dress nice, the first appointment, right? So part of your process is, all right, when you come to a consultation, these are my expectations, that you dress professionally, you're showing up, you're there for about an hour, you're walking through, you're providing value, we're charging for our consults, you're telling them what you would do in their space, you're asking them how it's functioned, you're doing all of the things that you do, but you're teaching that process to somebody else because you want them to do that the same way because you've had success with it. So then from there, then it's just a building block of processes. So having how you communicate with clients, you know, identifying that, how you, um, you know, talk to clients about budget and meetings, how you do a presentation, you know, when they come into a showroom or a studio with you and you're, you know, presenting your design plan, is it, are you doing it through email and you're just emailing them storyboards and saying, Hey, look what I finished. I just want to show you this great storyboard or, are you charging them an hour and bringing them into a studio or a showroom space or an office and laying everything out and walking them through and then reading their body language to see how they're responding to certain things and showing them and letting them touch feel and having 
you know, paint samples and fabric samples and hardware samples and everything out there so that they see what that cohesive look is in addition to your storyboards. Those are all kind of sales tactics, but they're all part of your process that's unique to your firm and how you like to do it. Some designers put things up on a big display screen and they have, they scroll through a PowerPoint presentation. Others, you know, will, um, I mean, there's so many different ways of presenting your, your design plans, right? But that's all part of that process. So if you bring in another designer and they come in and they're suddenly emailing off, you know, CAD renderings um, that you've spent hours on to somebody who hasn't paid a deposit yet, you're like, oh, you know what? We don't do that. Yeah. We do it this way. You know, we meet with them in the studio and they get the copies of the drawings once they've paid their deposit on the cabinets or whatever it is. Um, so those are those processes. So you slowly build those over time over what works and what doesn't for you and how you want to work. And I don't think there's any one particular process that works for everybody. It depends really on the designer and what they're hoping to get and how they work. Some designers work with just builders. Some designers work for model homes. Some designers work, you know, it's going to be different. Mm-hmm. But having an, and identifying what those processes are and then being able to replicate those and teach those is what, it, and if those are working for you, then that's what's going to give you that ability to replicate and have it work across the board. Got it. So you talked a little bit um, about booking out, right? So you're like, okay, if I'm booking out, whatever. Generally speaking, currently in your business, if someone called you today, when would you be booking them in? Um, Probably, well, I always try to get them into a consultation in the first two to three weeks. If they're doing a remodel or a remodel project, right now we're booking until about August, September, October, somewhere in there to actually do the work. So we can start kind of the design stuff, but the construction calendar is looking out till about, we've got projects already on the books until September, October. So that's kind of where we're booking. Okay. So you kind of have like a, I I assume too, would I be, would it be safe for me to assume that you also have like, that's when your construction is working and you, yes, you can do the design work before, but you still might not necessarily be able to start immediately or am I wrong on that? Um, no, usually we book uh, consultations, we usually book out, we book our appointments out about two weeks. And okay. then once we do the consultation, then the design is about a month later. Right now with our project, because I have uh, three senior designers and two junior designers. So from a design standpoint, um, usually we'll book out to do the design work about two months is what and we'll book out with so all I'm, of us. So I'm clear, you mean the you're presenting two months out or you're starting the design two months out? Got it. Um, Probably presenting. Usually it really just depends. It kind of ebbs and flows. Uh, First quarter of this year, and you can edit this part out, really sucks. We weren't doing a ton of proposals. I'm now not things are if that's that. okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's How like people want to hear it, that. It, well, I, you know, and I might be an anomaly because our our business model is kind of different. We're more of a design build, and more of our projects are going to be in the you know hundred thousand dollar plus range. And so, getting those projects the first quarter of this year before tax season was really brutal. It was probably the worst quarter in 17 years, even, you know, from 2009, but I wasn't doing a lot of construction projects back in 2009. True. But I'm going to say what I feel about that is that it is, I've only, this is three years for me in April. Right. And it was 
the shits the first quarter. Okay. It was terrible. Okay, so that gives me the warm okay. fuzzies inside that even Susan Winter seemed oh, good. a rough year. <laughs> yeah, sure. it, was, it, was, it was a rough quarter. And it, yeah. it got me really scared that we were going to see a big pullback in the market. So, you know, I would ask people, though, and everybody that I was talking to was like, oh, I'm slammed. I'm so busy. And, this. Oh. and I'm like, well, do you have a team or is it just you? Like, I know. Like, I... Like I, so, and I feel, you know, being a business owner with designers that are working for me, I feel super responsible to make sure that they're staying busy because especially my lead designers or my senior designers are commissioned. And so they are dependent on, because they are paid a very low rate, hourly rate, and then they're commissioned on the jobs. And so for them, you know, selling large jobs is their livelihood. I mean, that's part of, you know, how they're going to make their money and make it worth it because they get a general contract, which a lot of designers can't do. So we're getting the design work and then we're getting the general contracting work and then we're getting the resale of products. So there's three different sources of, of income. And if they don't get commission on that, then it really hurts them. And so, and I can't afford to keep them going if they don't have jobs. So me personally, I have a lot of repeat clients that come back that want to work, but, and so we were okay. Like I could support myself, but I was, I I feel super responsible to make sure that the designers are staying super busy and full with projects. Yeah. So I can't imagine the stress. (laughs) I'm just like, but at least it's all on me and it's just me. It it affects. Um, Okay. So I want to go back to the booking out thing. So, Okay. Do you find, like, are, are you, you're, I mean, what did we say? 17 years in business? Is that what we said? Yeah. Yeah. So you have a name for yourself. So people likely are like, okay, I'm down right. to wait. But right. at some point in your business, was that a, like, was that hard for people to hear? And at what point in time do you tell yeah. them that information? Uh, usually in the very initial phone consultation, I'll always ask them, do you have a timeline for your project? Are you trying to get this done in a certain time frame? And if they say, yes, we're closing escrow in three weeks and we want to start the work, you know, as soon as we close escrow, can you start and do all the design work in the next two and a half weeks? And I say, no, like the design process typically takes anywhere from two to four months just to design, you know, one kitchen. Before we can even order items, and then we order those items, and then your construction is another six weeks out because cabinets take five to six weeks. So timelines sometimes won't work for some of our clients. Um, So, and then I also take summers off, which um, I don't really work (laughs) over the summers. (laughs) You're living the dream. Huh? Yeah. So a lot of times in April, I'll start getting phone calls from my repeat clients, and they'll say. I know you're leaving for the summer, so can we get an appointment on the books because we want to remodel and we can start in August when you get back? I'm like, cool. So they've been trained, you know, yeah. to know that I'm not going to be in San Diego over the summer. So yeah. uh, because again, I wanted the lifestyle to, I wanted to hang with my kids, you know, over the summer. And this summer is a little different. I'm kind of going, I, I'm mostly going to be in San Diego, but I'm not going to be meeting with clients. Um, but they all, all my kids rebelled and said they wanted to stay in San Diego this year. So, right. And so, okay. You probably also have, I assume a minimum, minimum project that you'll take on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And okay. So is this information and I apologize, I've not like your website, but is this information that's available on the website? But even if it is, I think it's safe to say that most, okay, it's not. Okay, so she's shaking her head. I, I, never put, I never put pricing on my website. 
Okay. Um, so you talk about that. Let's say somebody calls you. Okay. Can you just explain maybe, take right. me through your lead process. Somebody fills out a form. Like, what does that look like? Um, yeah. And I assume you probably don't want to get on the phone with every single person. Are you the person no, taking the calls? You do. Okay. Oh, yeah. I so do. Can you take us through what that looks like? And I might just yeah. interject to, to clarify or ask some more details yeah. about things. Sure. Um, so uh, typically we have a couple different ways that people contact us. Well, either through Instagram or Facebook, um, on our website, through an inquiry form on our website, or through House. So those are kind of our four, or they'll just call me. They've, they've gotten my number from a friend, and mm -hmm. the referral sources are still probably the majority of our work. Okay. Um, so, so we'll get a phone call, and I'll get some sort of information like, hey, we're interested in doing this, this, this. So then from a process standpoint, I have a project folder in Basecamp that's called Design Leads. And I will forward the information, whatever inquiry it comes into, whether it's a voicemail or a house inquiry or whatever, I'll forward it into that file. And so that I can track who I've talked to and who I haven't. Because I get, I, I, my issue is at my age now, I forget who I've talked to and who I haven't and what their project was, right? Right. So I still believe as the lead designer that I want to physically talk to every single person that comes with an inquiry because I've learned over the years what to avoid and what to push forward. So okay. it usually is about 10 to 15 minutes like conversation. Um, and I'll call everybody back within 24 hours. It's important that I always make that at least that first point of contact within 24 hours, unless I'm traveling or unless it's on a Friday night, then it's the first thing Monday morning. Um, and I will always try to talk to them. And I always start with the same question, which can you tell me a little bit more about your project? And then I just shut up and I just, I don't say anything and I let them talk. And a lot of times uh, people will tell you what you need to hear. If you just let them talk, you can hear all of, and you can kind of decide, is this a client a, that I want to work for and are they realistic in their budget? And have they worked with a designer before? So there's a couple qualifying questions that I always have. One is, have you, you know, um, you know, once you've told me about your project, I'll pretty much kind of um, do a lot of reflective listening, which it sounds like what I heard you say was you're interested in a kitchen remodel. You're not sure what that costs yet. You might want to take down a wall between the kitchen and the dining room. You might want to, you know, switch things up. You're looking for something that's going to fit the style of the architecture, you know, whatever. You know, do you have a budget in mind or have you looked at what things cost these days? Have you had an opportunity to kind of research the pricing around your project? And depending on that answer, then I will give them some feedback as far as, you know, on average, this is what we're seeing in the marketplace. This is kind of what, where things are laying. Does that seem consistent with what you were expecting? And, you know, sometimes we'll go, oh no, that's way more than I thought. Or can I do a kitchen remodel for $10,000? Well, no, you can't, you know. Um, that sort of thing. And then I'll ask them, you know, what is your timing like? And then I will ask them, have you worked with a designer before? And depending on their answer, if they say yes, I'll say, how was your experience? What did you like? What did you not like? Um, you know, what was beneficial? What wasn't beneficial? And then I'll say, what kind of design experience are you looking for? Are you looking for more of a DIY? Are you looking for more of, you know, consulting? Or are you looking for more of a full service? And usually people will say, listen, my husband and I work full time. I don't have time to do this. I have no design eye. I just need somebody that's going to pull it all together. Um, so, you know, depending on all of those answers, 
Then I'll launch into a little bit about how we work. Well, let me explain to you. Are, are you familiar with how we work at all? No. Okay. Well, let me explain to you a little bit about how we work. We start here. Um, you know, we start with our consultation um, and it lasts up to about an hour. And I come out on the remodeling jobs along with my lead designer and my junior designer. So there's three of us that come okay. out. We'll walk through the project. Um, so if my lead designer is taking a remodeling project, I always go to the first meeting and then I step back and I let them kind of do the preliminary design work and then I'll go in for edits. And so I'll go in and adjust or change things around and I'm always a part of the process, but I'm not the lead point of contact. I have my lead designer do that. So, you know, I'll go to the first visit, lay my eyes on things, and then I'll educate them about that process. So we do the consultation, and then we'll provide them a proposal for what the design fees are around it. And then I'll explain, you know, how the general contracting part works. And so that's pretty much our process. But I always like talking to the people first, because there's a lot of times when I'll say, you know, I don't think that we're going to be a good fit for your project. Or, you know, they'll say, I'll tell them the price, and I'll get a little sticker shock. And they're like, you know, I, just, I need to talk to my husband, which is... Basically, we can't afford it. And then the, uh, the other one is, um, you know, you can tell sometimes by talking with people, their personalities, and if you're going to mesh or not. Yes. And, and then sometimes I can also tell by the personality of my lead designers, which one is going to do well with that client. Oh. Like I have one designer that's one personality and another designer that's another personality. So depending on that client calling... I might put one of my lead designers with it because I know their personalities would blend really well together. But if I have somebody calling that has a really strong personality or really likes to um, be super, super involved, I know that we will probably clash heads because I'm a really strong personality. And so I have opinions and we would probably do this. So I know that I'm going to be a good fit for that person, but my other designer who's a little softer and a little sweetier, like that would be a really good fit, you know, kind of a thing. So right. that, that's kind of how I gauge it. Okay. And so, so you get an idea on the budget. So on your website, do you ask for budget or do you hold off on budget until you're on the phone? I hold off only because I find that in a lot of cases, if I put a minimum on there, they will skip over calling me and they'll call another designer and that designer will educate them on what the true costs are. And then they'll probably wind up going with that designer because that's happened to me. Oh, so when absolutely. clients call me and they think they can do their kitchen for 20 or they have no idea how much stuff is going to cost. If I spend some time with them, educating them on what the process looks like and what labor costs are versus material costs and you know, what are you going to give up to get? And, you know, this is about what a kitchen costs. And if I'm giving them the value in that first conversation of averages, you know, this is about what you're going to be in for. And this is probably what you should budget for. I find that people like I've had some people call me and we'll have that conversation. She says, I've learned more from you than the two free consultations I got last week where I actually had to meet them out at the house. Like just the, the, the information that you gave me, was so vast that I, I didn't even get that. I had two designers at my house and one said that I had to get a general contractor out there to give us a bid. And I couldn't do that until the design was done. So she had no idea what she was signing up for, right? Because That's the designer scary. had to take the time to explain, you know, what these costs might be. So I think that, um, you know, what, you're, what we're always trying to do is provide value and differentiate ourselves in the market of why we're different and why it is that you might want to work with us. Um, because we may um, have, have 
that that first conversation is just golden because it's not just hey let's book a consultation because I really don't want to waste your time or mine if if, if I were to let put the link up because I do have a consult link on my website that's a hidden URL that people can book a consultation on and I'll send that to them once I've screened them on that phone call and there there is an argument to be made to say well here's my consultation like book a consult and I'll come out in person and you can pay me and I'll tell you how I work but I don't have the time to do that like I don't have time to go out on three consultations a week and even though that may make me a little bit of money my time is better spent actually selling a bigger job. Yeah. And I will make that money back on a bigger job than to go out for the $300 consult and, you know, for 45 minutes and then not get the job because that we are so out of their budget or out of this and out of that. It just takes so much time and energy to commit to that, that I would rather make that $300 with a really good qualified consultation where I know I'm going to get a hundred thousand dollar kitchen remodeling job you know, redoing all their flooring and everything because now I've just made that back in space and I've saved myself a whole bunch of time. So it yeah, just depends sense. on what the business model is, you know. For sure. But it works different for everybody. And like some people, there's an argument I've heard on other podcasts where designers can book three consultations a week and three a week, you know, over a whole month, that's 12 a month. And they've got this nice little couple thousand dollar extra money that they wouldn't have had otherwise that may not have turned into jobs, but they've been able to provide value in those consults. And that's definitely a valid business model. It's just not my, like, I don't, it just doesn't appeal to me just because yeah. it's not my business model. I don't have the time to go out and do that. I would rather be doing that, uh, you know, for a current client. In other words, I don't know if that makes sense, but it totally makes sense. I think at the end of the day, we're building businesses that make us happy that we enjoy right. and that the work we're doing lights us up, inspires us and makes us feel right. like creative. And like, for me, e-design was one of those things where I was like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's not to say it's not great for someone else, but just the way that I work, it's not, it does I right. do not enjoy it. And it doesn't work for right. how I like to work. I like to see right. a project through. So I totally, it totally makes sense to me. So, right. okay, that whole, the way you explain not putting the budget on your website very much resonates with me and I like it. Somebody else too, um, I'm doing a series of uh, podcasts right now where I do role playing because I had a really bad discovery call a couple of weeks ago. Well, I would consider it bad where I just vi I verbal diarrhea and I just said way too much. And so I did a series <laughs> of role plays and someone made a good point too where Sometimes you see that number come through because it's not an educated number and you're right. either disappointed and they, you may not be excited to talk to them and you, and then you lose right. on a project that could have been right. just educated. And on the flip, you get a project where you just seem a little too eager because that number is so, you know, so it's a whole like, yeah. I'm like that, yeah. that really makes sense to me. So another thing right. you obviously do, you said is you, on that discovery calls, you talk about time frame. And you make sure that yeah. you do set that expectation in so that they understand yeah. because it's all about managing expectations. So they say, I want to start right away. You say, well, in right. my experience, this is how long it's going to take. Did it? Right. And then right. you just kind of wait and, and you're like, does that work for you? And you wait to see what they say. Yeah. Usually if it's, um, you know, if it's something where they need to start in three weeks and it's really unrealistic and there's no way I can get a crew there because they're already booked. And I'm just saying, we're not going to be a good fit for your job. You know, I'm not going to charge them $300 to come out there to their house and then say, sorry, we're not a good fit now. 
Yeah. So you just paid me $300 um, because your timeline is whack, you know? Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's just um, setting those expectations. And then for the people that can wait, then they're like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Like we're not in a huge hurry. Um, so it just really depends, you know, yeah. it really depends on, you know, what they're, what they're after, but definitely that screening call. And I, I've tried to see about like my other designers doing those types of, um, uh, discovery calls. And I, at the end of the day, I really like being the front person for it. I really like, because I can pretty much tell by how somebody talks and how somebody is talking to me on the phone and how their reactions to what I'm saying on the phone, if they would drive us nuts or they wouldn't, or if they're reasonable or they're not. Like I can pretty much tell, and my pricing, as much as I hate to admit it, might change if somebody is a huge pain in the ass on the phone, my pricing suddenly went up. Or if it's a job that's like super sweet and that's one I really want, maybe my pricing gets a little bit more agreeable because I see the bigger picture. So um, I will say that across the board, I never feel like I, um, I'm i fair across the board. Um, you know, I never, uh, you know, charge people by zip code. I never charge people, you know, mm-hmm. anybody that has a 2,000 square foot house versus a 10,000 square foot house is going to get the same pricing plan. You know, right. it's, it's not going to change. Um, and that's, um, you know, one thing that I know I'm fairly, I'm very consistent on. It just, it is what it is, what it is, you know, it doesn't yeah. really change that. So for sure. Yeah. And, and so if somebody on the phone were to say like, I'm a bit of a DIYer, do you offer services? <laughs> I mean, I, I did look at your website. It didn't seem like you offered like design only packages, but yeah. is that something you offer? Is it like, okay, I'm not a good fit. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I usually say that, you know, we, we do all size projects, but given your budget, we may not be the best value for you. So if you're looking to do a, you know, a living room for $5,000 and you need, you know, you know, five pieces of furniture and you want to go retail and you want to go shopping with me, I'm probably going to say, you know what, I think your best bet is to use one of the more novice designers at Pottery Barn that can kind of sit down and like go over everything with you and you can purchase everything through their store. Like, I don't think I'm going to be a good use of your budget. Yeah. Um, I think you can get more for your money if you were to go out and work with these type of designers or maybe a consult only designer, one that just does hourly consults. It's not priced per project. Um, So, you know, for us, you know, we've kind of gotten to that place where if I'm taking on your project, it's got to be, you know, a minimum. Although I will say I did take on a project for a, uh, one of my, a friend of a friend um, who had a really low budget and she was very, very sweet. And she really, really wanted to work with Savvy. And I had my two junior designers work on her project. And I let them go ahead and, and help her and source some things. And so it was really good experience for the junior designers, but at the same time um, was a much smaller project that we normally wouldn't take on. And it worked fine. It was just a, it was a 10 hour minimum package or something that I gave her. Yeah. Um, and that's it. But, you know, and that worked fine. And on occasion, we will take on some of those smaller things. This is kind of what I call filler projects, which help fill between some of the bigger things when you're waiting for a bigger project to, you know, the furniture to come in or the cabinets to be done or whatever. But I try, as you may have known, like it depends again on the business model. You could have a bunch of little projects or you could have a bunch of big ones and little ones, or you could have just fewer bigger ones. And it's yeah. just, there's that continuum. 
um, we had a job that was a really, really good remodel opportunity. It was about a $600,000 remodel. And as I was walking through the scope with them, um, I just knew it wasn't going to be a good fit for our firm, even though it was a really big, beautiful house and big job, but I knew it would tie up all of our contractors for a good eight or nine months. And then they would be just on my job and not on my other designer's job because we wouldn't have the flexibility because we're so niche now. Yeah. And so I had to recuse ourselves from that job also, just like a too small job. It was too big. It was right. too much to where it would tie up our resources too much, to the exclusion of other projects. And then you put all your eggs in one basket and who knows when another project of that size is going to come back up. So I said, you need a designer who only takes on one or two projects a year. And this is their project, you know, that wow. they're going to take on. So that was, you know, that was kind of an eye opener also. It's like, it's not just the projects that are too small, it's the projects. So really when you figure out where your niche is, um, and some people say, well, I don't want to be niched. I want to be a little bit of everything. And I just, I call BS on that. If you want to be really good at one thing, be really good at one thing and do that one thing really, really well and figure out where you're the happiest and figure out where your niche is and where your perfect client is and then go after that market and be really, really good, the best person at that market. Yeah, so. and I, I also a little bit call BS on that too because sometimes I feel like that is fear. You're like, you're afraid that you're not going to get work. And so you're just like, I'm going to be everything to everybody. And then at the end of the day, right. you're nothing to nobody. I, I agree. Right. I will say, um, I'm still kind of trying to figure out, like I generally, when I started my business, I'm mostly, I, my niche is like, I furnish and accessorize and I do small, right. minor construction work that help, you know, paint and built in right. stuff like that. Right. Um, but that being said, I've been, you know, we're doing our own house here, as you can see behind me. Um, and I, I took on a new build project because I thought, you know what, you can't know unless you do something, right. you know, it's really scary. And, and I, the, the right. jury is still out. I don't really know. Cause it's just so right. out of my comfort zone that I don't know. Yeah. So I'm kind of like trying to find what that niche is specifically and, you yeah. know, pushing myself a bit, but um, okay, so for a DIYer, you're not generally going to take on a project where you're just going to do, unless yeah. you've got some sort of crazy warm fuzzy, you're like, I got a lull right now, I'm going to do it. I feel real good about this lady, she's awesome, I want to help her, whatever. So you're only really doing consultations where it's like a kickoff to a project, ultimately. Correct. And yeah. what I heard you say was you do a consultation, and it sounded like mm -hmm. it's generally just an hour-ish, mm -hmm. and yeah. then the output of that is a proposal. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, so it sounds to me yeah. like you're not coming up with a price on the spot and saying, let's do this. You're saying, I right. understand your scope. We're talking about ideas. And then you're sending a proposal after the fact. Correct. Yeah. So I start with a consultation. So when they book the consultation, I have two documents that are attachments to that URL. And one goes over, it's a graphic of our process, of an overview of our process. And then it's like a mini scope of work contract where it's like, this is what to expect on our initial consultation. And so it's a document that basically kind of walks them through what, what they're going to expect at our consultation. Like, you know, show us inspiration photos. We're going to talk about your space. And then we're going to give you a proposal. So that's where we start. So then when we show up, you know, I've got my... Um, lead designer, my junior designer, my junior designer is typically taking notes, uh, lead, lead designers listening to what we're talking about, scope of work, 
And then I'm doing two things. I always want to feel like I'm providing value. They are paying for my time. Yeah. So I'm not there on a sales call, right? I'm not there to just bid their projects. I'm there to provide value and give them a, a, the benefit of my ideas. Whether they use me or they don't use me, at that point, it doesn't matter. You're paying me for my time. So I'm going to tell you, yeah, I think that wall should come down and I think you should push this over here. And I think if you move your refrigerator to that side, it would look really cool because then you get this to happen and then we can put a banquette here. And then I think I would put a sectional over here like this and I would change your stair carpet. And I think if we stain your handrails and then we paint the walls, all this color, all of those things that we're talking about are part of that consultation. Then when they look at you and say, well, how much is all that going to cost? Well, on average, your kitchens are going to be between X and X. On average, your furniture placement, your room designs are going to start at this. You know, a custom sectional, you're going to wind up spending this. I would budget this amount for that. So once you do all of that and you're able to um, put, put that all into context financially for them, then, they, then I usually ask for a scope of work. Like what is, you know, what are your priorities? What would you like to work on first? And what would you like us to bid as part of the design process of this? And they'll say, well, I'd like to get a bid for what it would be to design up the kitchen, do the family room. I'm going to wait on the master bedroom for now. Let's just get through these two rooms first, and then we'll see where we are. Great. I'll send you a proposal within about 48 hours by the close of day. So we go back to the studio, and I'll usually talk to the junior lead designers and say, put a proposal together for design fees. You know, for the kitchen, it's going to be this for the, you know, after we've seen it. So, you know, kitchen prices can change, right? If we're just painting the cabinets and swapping out countertops is a lot different than taking out a wall and rearranging all the appliances and figuring out and doing all the drawings and renderings for that. So it really is dependent on the scope. And that's why I can't give them just a blanket cost of what the design yeah. fees are going to be. It's like seeing the projects and seeing what we're going to design and to what level they want to design. Do they just want a sofa, coffee table, rug, and side table? Or do they want some cool wall treatment on the back wall and wallpaper and crown molding and built-ins? And, you know, so all of that goes into whatever the design proposal is. Then we'll come back and we'll put together a design proposal of the design fees. And we charge on a per-project basis. So per room, I'm giving you a flat rate of the what it's, the minimum it's going to cost. Like, this is what it's going to cost. And then... For our in-person meetings, we take a, an, a retainer, usually a five or 10 hour retainer that goes towards any in-person design meeting. So I might send them a proposal for their kitchen and family room design, and let's say it's $8,000 in design fees or whatever. That gets us to our very first presentation meeting where I've laid everything out. I've done the storyboard, the layout, any renderings or anything like that, you know, that we need to do. But then that meeting when they come in is billed at an hourly rate. And okay. so what that does is protect me so that I don't get a lot of phone calls afterwards saying, well, can you do the kitchen in blue now? Or I don't like, you know, so up until that point, we're doing discovery, right? We're doing send us your inspiration photos. Like we can't start until we get your inspiration photos. Send us you know, colors that you like or you don't like. Send us, you know, this information. How do you want to use this space? So we're, our goal is to get to that first meeting and nail it. And 90%, 95% of the selections are dead on. And maybe we, you know, they, they're not crazy about the side lamp and we're just specking out a different side lamp. So I'll give you one or two edits. At the point that we're redesigning the whole thing, you're going to get another design fee bill. You know, you're going to get time our hourly adding up to redesign that whole space again. So if you want me to reselect a sofa, a coffee table, a rug, that never happens. I mean, 
it's, I'd say 99% of the time it never happens. There's that that's 1% client that's like, you know, will you reselect everything for us? You know, and I'm like, yeah, I'll send you a proposal for my new design fee. So <laughs> yeah, it rarely happens. But when you charge clients for your time after your project costs, you, they make decisions a lot quicker when they know they're on the clock. When they're not on the clock, they take forever to make decisions because they want to see it every which way. Yeah. And they want you to redraft it or whatever. So, well, can you show it to me with white cabinets? Can you show it to me? So if they know they're on the clock, they're very mindful of the time that they're asking you to do extra things. So, so make decisions come quicker when you build them. Um, You won't get that hand-holding client. You won't get that client that just wants to say they are working with a designer when they're really not making any decisions with a designer because it's not costing them anything. It's not, you're not costing them time. They've already paid your design time on a flat fee. And so that's where you get screwed. So we do flat fee to that first appointment and then we do hourly after that. Um, And so that that helps us make those decisions. So your flat fee... Mm-hmm. In the proposal, you're basically saying, okay, let's call it $10,000. Your flat fee to presentation is $10,000. Are they, are you That's getting before that? Before we start to design. Right. We, we collect 100%? all of that front. Okay. Yes, 100%. So then I get to presentation day. Right. You're billable now. Mm-hmm. How does right. the, what's the logistics of that? I, I have you, my presentation was two hours, let's say. Right. What happens after that? Like, uh, how um, do you do created, Well, we take, usually before we start the project, we also take a retainer. So on the, on the design fee proposal, we'll have our design fees. And then in Ivy, we'll put in there um, a retain, you know, 10-hour um, retainer. And then we'll put our rate in there and then we'll decline it. And then in the description, we'll say, we'll collect this on a separate request if you go forward with us. So you'll pay our design fees and then they'll also pay like a 10 hour retainer or a five hour retainer. We keep that retainer on file so that when they come in, if they're with us for two hours, we'll create an invoice and then we'll just apply the retainer to that two hour invoice. Mm -hmm. And then from, from there, then we'll let them know you have three hours left or whatever. But usually by that point, we've made all of our selections and then we have one more meeting So we do the initial presentation, we make all of our final edits and selections, we finalize the proposal, and then we have a budget meeting. And that's more with the, less with furniture, but more with construction, where we'll sit down and go over a budget line item. I will literally read them line item by line item, all of the charges that they're getting charged for, for two reasons. One, to make sure that they understand what the costs involved in their remodel are. And I usually put like a 15% fudge factor in there, like an overage. Like these are going to be probably your add-ons. So you need to like psychologically be aware of this amount that you're going to get add-ons during the construction project because I've yet to go through an entire construction project without one and give them examples of what an add-on is. And then also um, just to make sure that we haven't forgotten anything. So sometimes clients are great at like, well, where's the painting of the baseboards? And I'm like, oh, you're right. We missed that. You know, let's add that in. Or remember I told you I wanted doorknobs that were all changed out in brass or whatever. And I'm like, oh, forgot that. Let's put that in there. So we'll go over that one just to make sure we've crossed our T's and dotted our I's. And then we'll send them that proposal for them to approve and pay on. Um, so it's kind of a two-step process, okay. you know, the presentation and then a budget meeting. And then they're billed for that budget meeting also to go over all of that. 
And so let's pretend there was no renovations because I don't do right. them very often and it's yeah. all about me. You're, you will be. I can <laughs> tell you will be. You're going, you're heading down that road. Oh no, it's scary. Okay. Yeah. I'm curious. It's scary, but it's rewarding. You'll Is love it? it. You'll Everyone love. keeps yeah. saying that. I haven't been love. at the end of that tunnel yet. Like I've, yeah. I'm in a new build, which is a real long process, obviously. Um, right. right now we're in our own reno hell. And then, you know, I've got right. some other stuff on the go. Um, would you agree that, though, the most profitable area, whatever, of the business is furnishing? No. No. It's, um, it's really... It's... I think everybody's going to have a different opinion for me, but again, it's the math equation. And so for us, the more profitable side of the business is the general contracting. Um, Mm, Only because, you know, so a couple of years ago when the internet got more and more, like you can order furniture on Amazon or you, you know, there's all these little pop-up furniture stores and things like that. The markup on furniture is good if you're buying stocking dealer. Yeah. But for designers, the pricing is not good depending on your business model. Now, if you're accommodating that pricing by charging higher design fees, that's fine. And if you have a very unique look and a look that somebody that's niche, that somebody really wants to achieve, they're willing to pay more for the same service if they feel they're getting a better value, right? Yeah. So they might pay more for your design fees because you're niched in the market that they really want in their own house. So mm. for them, it might be a value to pay a little bit more design fee and then get, you know, a pass-through furniture cost. For other businesses, um, let's say the average designer, they're not getting a lot in stocking on a designer discount. So they have to go through either a purchasing agent or get a stocking dealer. But unless they have a showroom, they're not going to get stocking dealer or volume pricing. And unless they're not selling enough, they're not going to be getting those volume prices anyway. So then you might have to move to a cost plus model, which I find incredibly antiquated, but that's me, um, where you're getting, you know, whatever I pay for it, we're adding a blanket amount of 30%, 40%, whatever it is. By the time you add 30% to a Pottery Barn $1,500 table, you're not making that much on that table anyway. No. And if it's damaged, it's chewing up your time to deal with that damage claim. And so if you counted up all of your hours for that 30%, there's not a lot. You've eaten up a lot of it, unless you're charging in addition to that 30% of project management time. But if you're looking at pure profit, you're not making a lot of profit when you count in all of your overhead and your time to manage the furniture. So it becomes kind of a law of averages. So if you can get a furniture piece for, uh, if if you take, if you buy something for $200 and you're selling it for $450, now you have a 2.0 or a 2.3 markup, right, Um, in retail. So now you're getting a lot more money for that item. And then you multiply that by 10. So really it becomes what your buying power is. You can make more money if you have better buying power. So if you're if which makes which makes the average designer have to hustle a little bit more to create those relationships with those vendors or purchasing agents where they're getting aggressive pricing on the back end because anybody can Google something and come up with a price less. So it really depends. I guess this is a circular way of it depends on what your business model is. Thirty percent to me isn't enough on furniture to make it worth it for me. Right. You know, I need at least 
a 40% margin, not markup, but margin to make it worth it. And so, you know, yes, I think there's money to be made in furniture. And if you did a lot of furniture, then yes, I think that there's some decent profit in it. But far too often I see designers that are either at a cost class or they pass along their furniture discount or there's no incentive for them to because they're cost class, they'll just go retail and just say, well, it doesn't matter. I can go and barrel and make the same I can make. Why go through all the hassle of ordering wholesale? I can order it in a catalog and get it to come from Crate and Barrel and ship it back if I don't like it. Yeah. Um, and so they might just work retail and that might be a certain type of business model because they've got that cost plus, but then there's no incentive. And the risk is higher because then you send somebody a proposal and say, I sourced this at Crate and Barrel. You're under contract to buy it to me for 30% more. And then the client's going, well, I'm not going to buy that through you. And then a year later, they go buy it themselves, you know, yeah. and with their 10% discount coupon. So it's riskier. With right. general contracting, you get a couple different sources. You get the design fee, you get a project management fee, and you get the markups on all the materials, and you get the markups on all the cabinets and the countertops and the laborers. Right. So it's, it's a totally different business model. Um, if there, some say it's more risk. I personally don't find it more riskier than furniture. I find it riskier to buying a $10,000 sofa and having it show up damaged and having to deal with it and be out that 10 grand for my client's sofa than I do when I'm hiring licensed subcontractors that carry insurance yeah. and they install something sideways. And I can say, you need to reinstall that or I'm not using you again. And they're like, yep. okay, I'll reinstall it. No problem. I got insurance to cover that, whatever. And so my exposure, all of the warranties and all of the service work lies with the contractors that are doing the work. I'm just the, the financial conduit is right. what I am. So the licensed subcontractors I use are all really good and I trust them and they're going to come back because I use them on job after job after job. Yeah. So that financially for us, that's what is the bulk and that's what works for my junior designers is because we can stay competitive, but then they can make commission and profit on general contracting, which other designers can't. If they were out on their own, they couldn't do because they need a general contractor's license in California. And that's not right. the same in all states, but in California, they do. Right. So for them, it's advantageous. Well, thank you for that. That kind of made me look at things a little differently, which is really nice to hear. Um, okay, I want to circle back to something. I, and this is just to confirm. I have three key questions I want to ask you before I let you go. Okay. Well, I mean, key is a strong word. But um, the first thing was, okay, <laughs> you, you take, you do the... I'm back to the pricing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. 10 grand to design, to presentation. You've taken a retainer at the same time as the 10 grand. Right. Right? Which yeah. is now, okay, I'm applying it to the presentation. Any work done after that. So if you're purchasing, for example, those right. hours spent purchasing all the furniture apply. I don't bill hourly for purchasing. I, like I said, early on, I'm inherently lazy. <laughs> So I don't like tracking hours and I don't like, um, like the minutia. So I charge a flat percent. So oh. what I do is like almost like general contracting. So if you're paying me for a service, I work on the law of averages. If I've done my homework and I have good vendors that I trust that I can order from, it should go like this. It should go really fast, right? My receiver should go fast. My vendor should go fast because I weeded out all of the ugliness of all the vendors that we don't like. And I only have my good ones, so it should go quick. And then on that occasion, when a damage piece comes in, because you work with good people, it should be resolved quickly. So it shouldn't take me a lot of time. 
So what I do is I price items competitive with the online, either match online pricing or maybe 5% below. And then I will have my stocking dealer account. So I will order those things. And then what I'll do is I'll add a 10% for furnishing and then 18% for construction materials. So I do a 10% for furniture orders, flat project management fee, and that, that's on the total. So if they buy $20,000 of the furniture, that's $2,000. And I know that if I've done my homework and my planning and working with vendors, I've come out ahead. If everything goes smoothly, I've come out ahead with a $2,000 project management fee on a $20,000 purchase. So that $2,000 right. covers my hourly. Okay, got it. So what else would the retainer, you're, you're saying it's just for any meetings, mostly? It's for any meetings, but I also take a retainer on, uh, we take retainer progress payments. So I use the retainer feature a lot. So each week we send out a retainer request for all the invoices that need to be paid that week in construction. Oh. So I'll send out a retainer request. So again, process, right? Wednesday mornings from 9 to 12 is accounting morning and the junior designers have the unfortunate task of sitting down with our credit card statement and matching up all the POs in our system with the credit card statement to make sure everything's accounted for and accurate. And then they also, all of our contractors by noon on Wednesday have to submit payment requests if they want to get paid on Friday. So they send their payment requests to a project folder in Basecamp. The junior designers look at it. They check with the senior designers. Did this work get done? Do you approve of payment to this contractor? Yes, great. They send that and they say, okay, this PO is ready to be paid. It's all been updated. They attach a copy of the invoice from the contractor to the purchase order. Purchase order goes to my husband, John, who issues all the vendor payments and does bill pay and will schedule a payment to go out and they get paid on Friday. So that, so wow. then at that point that we've paid those contractors, then our junior designers send out a retainer request to our clients saying, this is all the work that's been done this week, and this is what we need to collect payment for on Friday. And so they'll send out that retainer request, and then they'll go pick up a check by Friday that gets applied to all of those open invoices. That's the construction side. That's not so much for furniture. It's more for an yeah. ongoing progress payment for labor. But still, that's some intense process. Okay, so I got to ask this. Like, what what is your... like? how are you this good at process? Are you the person making all this stuff, like the process? Are you just very like good with it or, and what's your former career? I have a degree in psychology. Oh, hey -oh. <laughs> So um, I think I'm a very organ, I'm a planner by nature. So I like to plan. I'm not a fly by the seat of my pants kind of person. I like to plan. Um, I'm very process oriented and I, and I appreciate the organization to make sure it happens the same way each and every time. So I have a fairly specific process in place of what needs to happen when, and I'm always drilling that in. So if I see an inefficiency, I'm always changing it. Like if this isn't working for me anymore, we're going to do it this way. Yeah. And so like, for instance, project updates. So I, because we have so many different projects going on, we probably have about 12 to 14 projects right now. And I have different junior designers working on different ones and I'm working with other lead designers on things. And so in Basecamp, we have to-do lists and they're called project updates. And by last name, I have every client listed by last name. And then three times a week, they go into those last names and they have to give me an update on that project three times a week. Like called this, ordered this tile, did this, did that, so that I know 
that we're getting through that project and I know where it sits. So that at any given time, if any one of my employees is out sick, I can jump into their files and I know exactly what's going on and where they are in the process. So we can have full-on discussions at base camp about it and I get updates each week um, by the end of the day of like what's been completed that week. Okay, so. this is my next question for you. Okay. How stressed are you? <laughs> like, yeah, like I feel stressed all of the time and I'm not even doing half as much as what you're doing and you're now doing, you're managing, I know you have a team, well, you're managing a team you're managing right. trades, you're managing furniture orders, you probably, how many projects do you like to have at any given time? What's the sweet spot? Um, probably about eight or nine. So for like, me personally. are you stressed? <laughs> yeah, I think it ebbs and flows. I think the thing that stresses me out the most is when people don't do their job. That stresses me out the most. Like, you know, if, if I've trained you on it and I want you to do it a certain way and you don't do it that way, then that stresses me out. Um, but for the most part, I'm a really good delegator. I'm like, I'm like a really good delegator. And I think that helps a ton because between that and then savvy giving by design, you know, the nonprofit, it's like two different businesses. So I have to be a little bit everywhere. And I still like doing all the design work, like every single design project I have my hands on every single lead designer I'm redesigning or telling them what I want to have done. And then they're kind of, you know, they're putting, they're presenting me with an idea and then I'm going in and doing all of the edits for their projects, but I still like having my own hundred percent design project that I do all on my own. And that's probably the majority of our work. But I think from a stress level, yes, I do think that that's one of the reasons I take summers off and Good for work you, a couple hours a day and don't work the rest of the day or try to stay away from it. Um, but I'm really good at delegating, which helps a lot. I won't say it's a stress-free job. It, it is not stress-free. It's a very stressful job. But I feel like I've got another five or 10 years in me to kind of like work hard and then ho- hopefully build something where I can step back and that process is in place and the other designers can move it forward and I can be in the Caribbean with a cocktail. <laughs> so, um, no, but I think that's the ultimate goal, right? Is to build something where they always said that, you know, if you can't walk away from your business, you have a me, you don't have a business. Yeah. And so I'm always striving to work towards having a business where if I walk away, the business still keeps going. I don't want it to be just a me. I want it to be a business. So I recently read the e-myth and that was a lot of what it talks about. And it talks about like, you should be building processes that mediocre people can can execute like you shouldn't have right. to find exceptional people because that's not realistic right I thought right. that was a right. really I thought that was that a really is. interesting um way to look yeah. at it right um another yeah. thing for me I'm very similar to you in that like I'm very I just said I'm very similar to Susan Winterstein okay that's dramatic you are <laughs> <laughs> that's so I really I'm the same way I'm very process driven but where I need yeah. work is I convolute things like it's just I overcomplicate. And after we're yeah. having read the e-myth, I'm like, I need to dumb down my processes. Like it shouldn't yeah. be so elaborate. <laughs> so that's what yeah. I'm working on. Yeah. I so, think that's a huge rule is to keep things simple. And I'm married to one of those. So I get that because I think, I mean, my husband has so many great skill sets, but he does tend to take something and make it more complicated than it has to be sometimes. And I'm always like, no, we're just going to dumb this down. Like we're doing it this way. 
And um, he's like, okay, okay. So, you know, I do think that, you know, you just want to simplify as much as possible. And that's probably one of the reasons I don't track hours. Yeah. I mean, I know I, I, I track hours with clients when they're billable hours. I wouldn't track. So here's the other little tidbit I'll share with you as you get more experience. When you're doing a kitchen, when I'm doing a kitchen or when I'm doing a design plan, most of the time things will go very fast for me. Like I, when I go to the consultation and they're talking to me and I'm seeing some of their inspiration photos, by the time I leave, I already know what I'm going to do in that room. Right. And I already know what stuff I want. I know what chairs I'm probably going to propose. I know what the rug's going to look like. I, for the most part, I can do it pretty quick. And same with the kitchen. I've gotten to the point now where it's like I can play and tweak around with it a little bit. We may need to render it up, but that's not my time. I already know what I want. I just have to execute it. So when you get quicker, I don't want to be pub- punished for being fast yeah. at what I do. So what I do is that flat rate really is more of paying for my experience, paying for all of my experiences the last 20 years, all the travel I've done, every showroom I've looked at, every catalog I've browsed through, every magazine I've cruised. You are paying me for that global experience of having a design that's unique to that space. And so really it's more that's more about what the flat fee is it's not really translatable into actual time because every project is going to be a different time it's just the law of averages of what on average I'm charging for this look and then from there my physical time of meeting with you is the billable time but I think that wasn't the question you were asking me but I was I, I don't even care because I don't remember what it was because I liked yeah. it. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, simplifying the process. Right. It, it simplified it because suddenly it took out me having to track my time to actually design a kitchen and then being able to justify that time to a client of why it, for a client A, it took me 20 hours and client B, it took me two hours. You know, yeah. like there was no, it, it just takes the complexities out of it. Same with ordering furniture and going to a flat rate there's going to be some clients where I'm going to be upside down on that flat rate. If I've ordered, you know, a thousand dollars of the furniture and I only charge them, you know, a hundred dollars to manage their thousand dollars of the furniture, then, you know, and there's an issue with it. It may have cost me more on that one job, but when you look globally at the big picture of sales over six months and you look at your furniture sales and you have an automatic 10% plus your markup on that, it winds up like, averaging out when you do the math and you subtract your overhead and you subtract your rent space and your internet and your staff and your employees and the workman's comp and everything. And when you run those final numbers and you divide it up, then that's where the truth, the truth comes out, right? It's right. Positives and negatives. Where's the truth? And so when we finally did that on the truth, we made more money by a percentage than we did billing hourly. For right. It. That's amazing. And so, okay, I'm gonna, my last question, and then I want to give you the opportunity to tell everybody about Savvy Giving by Design. Um, oh, sure. So thinking back to early on, like right now I'm in a place where I'm really trying to, I get inquiries, but a lot of the times they're very low budget. So I'm really trying to go after like a higher paying client. I'm not looking for luxury, but a higher paying client. What would, right. be, what would be your advice to me or anybody else kind of starting out um, newer in business that's trying to get to that next level where, you know, clients are ready to spend more um, and, and can see the value and, and want make it more worth my while kind of thing? Right. Um, 
That's a really, really good question. What what part of town are you again? Where do you I'm live? in Toronto. Oh, in Toronto. Okay. Um, well, I have no idea the market yeah. in Toronto, <laughs> but um, I would say there are a couple things you probably could do, whether you want to do them or not. I don't know. But if you had a friend of a friend or somebody, those are the ones that you approach and say, listen, I will design it for free. And if you let me get really great photos and you buy all the furniture I suggest you buy and you purchase it through me, but I'll do all my design hourly for free and get, and get into that market to where you have a really strong, um, mm. you know, even if you had to do that with a, a couple really key clients, like I know, I don't know if you've ever listened to Shay McGee, but that's yes. how they kind of started. Yep. They basically um, so gave away said, most of their discount, I think. They did. They gave away most of their discounts, sold everything at cost just to get the good photos to build on that so that the people that had the higher budgets were able to see exactly what they could do. So for somebody new that may not have that big house to kind of showcase, that would be a really, it's a decent way. It's one way of getting into that market. Um, the other thing is networking with those type of people. So where are you likely to find those yeah. higher budget clients? And that's where you get back to philanthropy. Yeah. You know, a lot of times the people that are going to these fundraisers and these higher end events are the people that are being invited are the ones that are in a certain socioeconomic stratosphere, right? They're those top one percenters that can go to these events and donate. And so when you are going to a lot of the same events that some of these higher, you know, um, income earners are going, you're going to meet them and you're going to talk to them and you're going to tell them what you do and you're going to tell them what kind of services you provide and that we do full service interior design. And most of these people are either both working full time and they, you know, you sell the value of your services and why you're different than everybody else that's out there. But once you start socializing with those types of communities, and that's a great way to do it. It's a win-win, right? You're going yeah. to a philanthropic event and you're giving back and you're meeting other people. And so whether you know somebody there or whether you offer up some of your design services, like people love to bid on design packages, you know, like here's a $5,000 design package. I'll design your kitchen. It goes to charity. You get to write it off. They get a, you know, whatever. And they get a kitchen and maybe you get a sale or two out of it. But you know, that would be a great way to kind of start to surround yourself and start to network with those types of those types of people. The other That's thing right. is become the expert, become the expert in your field. So whether whatever it is, if you're a furniture, if you're whatever, be the expert and start to ask around to a lot of your local chambers or Maybe it is women's groups and things like that. Ask if they're looking for a guest speaker. Like I'd like to come in and give you my top 10 remodeling design tips and tricks or designer hacks or, you know, whatever, how to put a, you know, how to accessorize a bookcase, whatever it is, become the expert in your area so that they're looking to you as like, you're the expert. You must know. And I, so I'm going to hire you. I love all those ideas. Thank you so much. So, okay, I want you to tell everybody about Savvy Giving by Design and then let everybody yeah. know where they can come follow you if they're not already following you and they're living under a rock. <laughs> Savvy Giving by Design is going to be really the very first interior design-driven collaborative nonprofit nationally. So what I love about this program is that it's, again, very replicatable. 
Um, it was important to kind of set a system of processes in place about how we make over kids' rooms that are facing a medical crisis. Most often it's cancer, but it's not always. There's a lot of, um, uh, we have had some kids that have been paralyzed or brain tumors or aneurysms. Um, and what we're trying to do is get into their spaces early in their treatment so that they have the best possible outcome for healing because we realize that the spaces that we're in um, and certainly well-designed spaces have an impact on if their friends are going to come over and hang out and friends kind of stay longer when the room's kind of cool and they get to play X gate box or whatever, or they get to play with the dollhouse or the vanity um, or caretakers can spend more time in there because there's a bed big enough for the two of them to sleep in there or they can see when they walk in. So they're not bringing the child out into another room you know, to take care of them, that they get to be in their own space, that their light control is there. So in the middle of the day, when they're feeling really crummy, that they can close the blinds and sleep really well. Um, all of those things play a part in their healing process. So what we're doing is coming in and meeting with these families and making over that child's space that's not only beautiful aesthetically because it's done by designers, but we're putting those mindful thoughts into how we're designing the space and how it's best going to suit that child's um, physical um, needs you know, to heal in that space? Are we taking out carpet? Are we doing, like I said, better lighting? Are we doing organic bedding? What are we doing that's going to better that living situation for that child? So as we've grown, I think we're up to about 13 chapters. We just added another one yesterday up in Los Angeles. Um, we um, have seen just the interior design industry really come together. I mean, that's the beauty of it is that we're all kind of collaborative trying to do the same thing and use our talents for something for some of these families that may not ordinarily be able to afford a luxury service. Mm -hmm. um, so we're doing um, a, a lot of work. And then we just recently partnered with Make-A-Wish in San Diego, mm -hmm. where we are fulfilling their room wishes for San Diego area. Um, so the child comes to make a wish and says, I want a new room. They contact us and they sub it out to us and they fund the room and we do the room, uh, wishes for them. And then if that works well, again, talking about systems and protocols, we'll roll that out to all of the make a wish chapters across the country so that we are their go-to for all the room wishes. Um, so we have a professional interior design you know, run nonprofit that gets tapped into for the Make-A-Wish rooms. So it's really kind of exciting because it's growing quickly, but, you know, I've got another five years where I really want to kind of like grow this and get that's this amazing. going. And so Congratulations. Cool. Yeah, that's really, really incredible. And so if anybody is interested in being a part of that or learning more, where should they, where should they go or how should they contact you? Um, they could follow us on uh, Instagram, which is Savvy Giving by Design on Instagram, S-A-V-V-Y. Um, join one of our Facebook groups in our different regions. There's a Facebook group for every chapter. Um, come to our website, read more about it, and become either a savvy giver or if you're interested as a designer and having a chapter in your area to uh, send us a note um, through any of those platforms or give me a call and then I'll do an informational call and kind of talk to you more about what's involved. Amazing. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm really glad we were so able to connect. Awesome. Yeah. I hope it was helpful in, on some level. I feel it like I so just kind of kept rambling. Oh, good. No, okay, that's good. good. It's it wasn't random. Oh, <laughs> it's like he knows. It's like okay, they're wrapping up. It's time. Yeah. He did so well. Yeah. Um. Thank you so much. And if they were gonna go find sure. you, they're just gonna find you at Savvy Interiors on Instagram. Yeah. Savvy Interiors. Yeah. Uh, actually, my Instagram is Inside by Savvy. I N S I D E. So 
that's my showroom space is inside. So I have that on Instagram and then Savvy Giving by Design. So those two, Savvy Interiors on Facebook and on our website. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so yeah. much. Have an awesome weekend. And we might have to, do, so much, we have to do this again if you're up for it in a couple months. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs> All right. Anytime. Thank you. I so okay. appreciate yeah. it. People are going to love it. Bye. Oh, okay. Bye, doll.